Good evening, everybody. For 11 days, the migrant boats didn't come, and many commentators, even those who'd been very critical of the government over channel crossings, said, hooray, the Rwanda policy is working. I told you here last week it had nothing to do with that, but more to do with the persistent northeasterly wind in the English Channel for that period of time. Well, I went out into the English Channel today, but some people didn't think I should be there. It's very interesting, actually. Footballing superstar Gary Neville had this to say. Well, I suppose people are entitled to their opinions, but it's as if people like Gary Neville, the super-liberals, uh, Gary, of course, a Labour supporter, but it's as if they think it's actually wrong, ghastly, terrible to even cover the subject. They don't want to have a debate. Well, Gary, if you want to come on this show, I promise you, you can come and have your say and we'll do it in a civilised way. But I won't be stopped by people saying I shouldn't do something. I want the truth to be out there. So, out there in the channel today, there are probably 350 people that have crossed so far today. There could be more um, as the evening develops. That was after 254 crossed yesterday. Channel crossings are running at four times the number of last year. If that keeps going, it'll be 100,000 people. Today, as with most days, it was 90% young men. There were, of course, some women and children. Let me show you some footage of what I saw today in the English Channel. And keep your eyes peeled. There's something in this video that's never been seen before. So, another morning in the channel. It's 5.30. There's the Dover lifeboat going out. They're out. There are naval vessels in the channel already. Border force will be out soon. There are drones going up. There's a helicopter out every single day. This is an absolutely massive operation whenever the weather's come. But we talk about the £5 million a day that it costs to put people in hotels. Goodness knows what this costs every single day. This is Dover Coast Guard. We've got a small radar target. Have you seen any small craft uh, whilst you've been transited to the northeastbound lane of it? We're right on the edge now of French and British waters. As you can see, four men in. The French naval vessel has escorted this migrant dinghy from a quarter of a mile off Cap Finisterre. They're just about to cross the line into British waters. We're here. Uh, there's no naval vessel, there's no border force vessel or lifeboat vessel at this moment here because you know why? They're busy. You can see this boat and you can see the amount of water that it's pushing up. And my guess is, my guess is they're all going to be very, very wet. That's because of traffickers' greed. Uh, this boat is completely overloaded with people. We've just called the Coast Guard, so we've called this one in so they know the exact location of it. Everybody on board there is safe. Uh, look to me maybe a couple of women and 18 men, something like that. So that actually is one of the more traditional ones that are across the channel, one of the smaller ones. The bigger ones tend to have 40 on. But as I say, all the assets, despite the massive size and cost of what we've got, all the assets are currently being used. And I still can't help thinking this isn't anything other than a very expensive taxi service for criminal trafficking gangs. Interestingly, a report earlier on in the channel today that one of the boats, the person at the helm, doesn't pay. Effectively, the person at the helm is a trafficker. Well, somebody on one of the ferries saw the guy at the helm take his coat off and chuck it in the sea so he could not later be identified. These are the kind of tricks we're seeing in the English Channel. We have now seen, in the last couple of minutes, three of the people on that boat throwing their mobile phones into the water. It was interesting. 
One of them, I won't say who, we saw on the telephone, basically describing who we were, clearly speaking to somebody in England. Of that, I've got no doubt at all. But three of them we've seen throwing their phones into the water. If these were legitimate refugees, why would they need to do that? So this is Hurricane. It's a former wind farm boat that's now being used by Border Force. And he's going to come and pick these people up. Um, and what will probably happen then is the Royal Navy will then come along and tow the empty dinghy back into Dover Harbour. So Border Force Valiant is behind me. Um, it's loading up. We're told that it's full and can't take any more people on board, which is a problem because a little bit further out, as we speak, there's a search and rescue operation going on. The helicopter's up and there are 35 people apparently in some trouble. But just to think, you know, it's full. I don't know what kind of assets we're going to need in the English Channel in June and July of this year because the numbers coming are going up and up and up. And if the Rwanda policy is going to work, they better get started pretty damn quickly. So did you spot it? Did you spot the mobile phone being thrown into the sea? We saw three of them do that on that boat today. I put it to you. If somebody is a genuine refugee with nothing to hide, why on earth would they throw away their identity documents and their mobile phone? Of course, the British government do give them a brand new mobile phone pretty much as soon as they arrive. But it says to me something's wrong about all of this. These are not genuine refugees. Why should they be ashamed of their identities? Why should they want to hide who they are? That's what we saw today. So let me ask you, perhaps a little bit tongue-in-cheek, the question of the day, is the Rwanda policy working? Give me your thoughts, farage at gbnews.uk. Let me say this, the Rwanda policy, in my opinion, can be a serious deterrent to paying three, four, five thousand euros to a trafficker to get across the English Channel. But it has to happen. And time and again, we've heard of policies like pushback that actually come to nothing. Time and again, we've been told, ah, actually, we're going to start sending people back to France. We're going to begin deportations. None of it has ever happened before. And until it does, this is going to continue. Looking at the weather forecast, I would be very surprised if several hundred people a day don't come for at least the next week. Let me know your thoughts, Farage at gbnews.uk. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Alexander Downer, former Foreign Minister of Australia, former High Commissioner, of course, to Australia here in the United Kingdom. Uh, your thoughts um, on the Rwanda idea, please. Because, well, I mean, I, you know, just before, you've lived through all of this in Australia. We have lived through exactly what you have seen um, from, t from uh, today when you yep. went down to the channel. It's exactly what was happening coming across to Australia from, in, in that case, from Indonesia. Um, so we, in the end, gave these people a choice. They could either stay in Indonesia, by the way, they weren't being persecuted in Indonesia, they weren't Indonesians, or they could go to Nauru, yeah. a small island uh, country in the uh, South Pacific. Um, so this, uh, that worked. That worked. In the end, they stopped coming. Um, and if you, in the case of the UK, make the Rwandan solution actually work, you do get them to Rwanda, then that will stop the trade. Because those people will have a choice. They can either stay in France, because they're not French people, they're not being persecuted in France, 
or they can go to Rwanda and can make up their minds, whichever they would like to do. And to Rwanda, it will cost them at least 3,000 euros to pay for the little journey on a uh, little short journey on a very on a very dangerous boat. But you used that island, but there was global condemnation of the Australian government for doing it, and there were stories, weren't there, of people there in Nauru being abused, getting mistreated. No, but not mistreated by the Australians. No. They were treating, mistreating each other. Um, there was a certain amount of that. There wasn't a lot of it, but there were occasional stories. But you're right. There was a huge campaign run against the um, Australian government. And it was the United Nations, it was the European Union. I think the British government were pretty critical as well. Yeah, I don't remember the, whether the British government were or not, but the, <laughs> uh, maybe they were, I just can't remember that. But um, the European Union was very critical. Um, so as the Australian Foreign Minister, I'd go to these different countries and um, you could go and visit the United Nations and I would get an absolute hammering. In, on, on the other hand, what was happening was that people smugglers were running a racket into Australia. And just as you've seen on television here tonight, um, these people were throwing their phones into the sea. They were destroying all identity documents. So, this, so really, it's sort of, it was this, exactly the same. This is a carbon copy. Yeah. It's a carbon copy. And, um, well, if you want a carbon copy, I would implement a carbon copy of what the Australian government did. Um, and that is um, buzz them off to Rwanda. Yeah, and then after that, after you used the island of Nauru, you then started just towing boats back, didn't you, to Indonesia? We didn't tow many back. We have occasionally towed bo boats yeah. back. It's quite difficult to do that. You can only do it when it's safe to do so. So, I mean, looking at the television tonight, you can see that across the channel, they are just tiny little, um, you know, they're like children's uh, toys that you have uh, at the beach little rubber rafts, it's very difficult to tow something like that back and it being safe to do so, it's very difficult. It's a good idea, but it's very hard to implement. The best thing to do is to transfer these people as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible to Rwanda, and you won't have to send many of them there, but once they know they're off to Rwanda, um, you can All rest right. assured they will stop coming. But is it going to happen? Well, that's up to um, the government and the Home Office. I mean, for the Home Office, it's a huge challenge to implement this. The Rwandan government, I've met with them myself, the yep. Rwandan government's very willing. They have, of course, a lot of refugees already in Rwanda. The UN funds refugees in Rwanda, so the situation is quite uh, well prepared for refugees there. Um, uh, Boris Johnson it, called it one of the safest countries in the world. That seemed a bit of a stretch. Well, I haven't visited every country in the world, although I've visited a lot of them. Um, I have visited Rwanda. Yep. It's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country in Kigali, the capital. Is, uh, is the neatest, cleanest city in Africa, I would hazard a guess. I haven't visited them all, but it's a very, very nice country, Rwanda. And there are a lot of refugees in Rwanda from different countries, mainly in Africa. The UN does, does take people to Rwanda, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Yeah. They will be protected in Rwanda. They won't be persecuted in Rwanda. No, well, it's, I mean, clearly you think Priti Patel's right to have launched this policy, She's but it needs to happen. Right. And the first legal action has already uh, been launched by one of the refugee groups. Um, the Calais group have launched already mm. the first legal challenge. Um, 
And I wonder, you know, with the Human Rights Act legislation we have in this country, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for us. Um, well, I think, you know, the question is how, how the government will go in the courts on this issue and the extent to which um, they will be able to deliver the policy legally. I mean, prima facie, it's completely legal. Um, what's illegal if somebody claims refugee status is to return them to the country where they say they're being persecuted. Now, I think I'm right in saying more than 50 or 60 percent of the people who are coming to the UK across the channel say they come from Iraq and Iran. There are many of them are, are Kurds from Iraq and Iran. Um, so you can't return them there. That would be illegal. But to send them to Rwanda, which is a signatory of the United Nations Refugee Convention, no, that would be legal. Um, so they should be successful in the courts. It's going to be very interesting and a lot's at stake for the government. Um, the, the opposition have nothing to say well, on this Well, to be at all. fair to the government, I mean, and, and it, it's a fashion always to attack the government of the day, whoever it is. Yeah, but but, but the, point, the government, but the the is, government is doing everything it reasonably voted, can. But we voted Brexit to get back control of our borders. Yeah. It looks like we've lost control completely. No, the government, but to be fair to the government in particular, to be fair to the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, they are they are trying. They are trying. I, I would agree. To stop now this. they're trying. Up until now, they haven't tried very hard at all. Well, and I think that's why the Rwanda policy got cheered by conservative voters up and down the country. At last, they're doing something, but they have to deliver. Alexander, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening. It's and a pleasure. Interesting words, weren't there, from the Australian experience that if you actually do it, it can really, really work. But will they do it? I don't think it's going to happen unless we get Brexit 2.0. We have to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. We have to get rid of the Human Rights Act. We don't need anybody in Strasbourg to tell us, of all countries, what is right and what is wrong. I asked you, is Rwanda working? Some of your reactions. Having a policy is meaningless. I very much expect not one single one person will end up there. This is all a big con, says a Twitter user. All those who have come here in the last couple of days should be sent to Rwanda straight away, says John email. The Rwanda story is a piece in the larger puzzle of fully leaving the EU and its human rights legislation. Whoever you are on Twitter, you are absolutely bang on the money, in my view. It won't work until we actually start sending people to Rwanda. Ryan, you're absolutely right. Having lived in a safe African country for 20 years, I don't understand how it's inhumane to get asylum seekers processed and potentially having refuge there, says Maya. And certainly the words of Alexander Downer on this from his experience of Australia, were very, very interesting. Now, right to buy. Yes, it's back again. Uh, it appeared in David Cameron's 2015 manifesto. I'm not sure really too terribly much happened after that, but we may have a cost of living crisis, but many people have simply nowhere to live. There are one million people on the waiting list for social housing. For many, many people, it isn't just generation rent. Many people particularly in areas like London, can't even afford the rents. Um, and they're living with mum and dad. We have a massive, massive housing problem. Is the government sincere? Is it on the right tracks? What are the lessons we can learn from the past? Well, Jeremy Leaf joins me, former residential chairman of the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, North London estate agent, and a student of housing for many years. Jeremy, a quick recap on the ACEs. Mrs Thatcher comes to power 40 years ago, 
gives people in council houses the right to buy. Many take the option. Uh, they get houses at incredibly good prices. They were thrilled. They became Tory voters. for. The, I, you know, I've knocked on the door of elderly people who, who say, we're so grateful to Mrs Thatcher. And it all seemed to be, from my perspective, a fantastic success. But there was a problem, wasn't there? We didn't seem to replace any of them. Uh, well, that was the point. <laughs> and it's the same again. The, the questions remain unanswered. How are we going to replace the stock? Most people accept there's that unanimity on the housing crisis is we don't have enough affordable housing. And it's all very well to have another new policy, which sounds very good and it's always going to be very popular, but how are we going to replenish that stock? So housing associations, that's what the government's saying. It's going to get housing associations to sell off their stock of property to people at, I say knockdown, I mean relative, relatively cheap houses. Does the government have the power to say this to the housing associations? I mean, if it was council houses, councils and government can do it. But when it's housing associations, it all seems pretty difficult and quite vague to me. It is at the moment. We're short on detail. I think from a housing association perspective, they want to know how are they going to be compensated and how is their stock going to be refreshed because they don't want to just give it away for nothing and they want to know what's going to happen. We need more detail. What the discounts are going to be, what's the replacement programme going to be, will there be enough housing just to rent without buying, correcting some of the issues that weren't corrected before. Did the 2015 manifesto pledge to do something lead to anything at all? Very, very little. When we had a change of um, leader, uh, Mrs May came in, yep. uh, that seemed to coincide with that policy getting kicked in the long grass <coughs> and uh, it was largely forgotten. But it's a very popular policy. It was quite interesting. In 1997, I was looking back at some of the... Uh, I'm old enough to remember all that. Um, in 1997, when Labour came in, they didn't chuck the policy out. Um, they and they didn't change it. They didn't re uh, re because they knew it was a very popular policy at that time. Of course, the people who benefit were were very happy to do so. We have a population that is rising by about half a million a year. I mean, these are unprecedented rises in population. Yet we build 200,000 new homes a year. I mean, we're just we're just about keeping up, but not really. So what's the answer to this? I mean, number one, <clears throat> with the housing stock that councils have, etc., housing associations, if they sell off, they've got to, they've got to replace. And I think we would all agree on that. We've learnt that lesson. But more generally, is it large-scale house building that we need? Well, it's just, it's never one single policy. It's not one silver bullet. Yes, we do need to build more properties. Yes, we need to bring empty, empty stock back into use. Yeah. Yes, we need to develop more on brownfield property. Yes, we need better, faster planning policies. We need a lot of things. Not just one policy is it going to fix it, but it may be a start if the rules are set right and the levels are right for, in terms of the discount and the stock is replaced. It could be a catalyst for mm. other change. And in terms of the private sector, you know, governments, uh, giving local council areas and authorities targets. You know, you've got to build 28,500 houses. And what we're beginning to see is political opposition at local government level to national government right across the country. And this big uptick in house building, it simply isn't happening, is it? Not, not fast enough. It is. There's lots of good projects happening. And they, 
are starting and coming on stream, but it's not happening fast enough. Otherwise, we would see it in the housing market figures, in the pricing, and we'd see um, the uh, housing waiting lists coming down, not so many uh, issues. I mean, I'm in the business every day of the week, I have been for many years, and I don't see any changes particularly. I see some improvements, but not happening fast enough. Is the housing market slowing? Generally, in terms of it is a little bit because um, prices will not be, uh, won't go up as fast as they were, say, last year, because there's obviously great concerns about rising interest rates and uh, inflation, and that's bound to affect confidence and to take on debt, and therefore the market will slow. But the overall shortage of property, which you alluded to earlier, mm. is going to keep prices rising, albeit more slowly than <coughs> they were previously. Yes, I must, I must say my feeling is the bottom, <coughs> lower end of the housing market is propped up by demand that considerably exceeds supply. Is there anything hopeful you can say to young people out there who want to get on the housing ladder? Well, if prices do level off a little bit, it is very, very tough for people, and not just in, in houses to buy, or, um, but to rent as well. Rents have gone up quite a lot. But I think this might create some balance. I think we need to get more stock on the market, that more building, as, as we said yeah. earlier, and that will help to keep prices in check and make it affordable. Because those young people, particularly at the bottom of the ladder, they are absolutely vital to it, because they trade up from the bottom rather yeah. than, say, investors. It's, it's, it's getting that start, isn't getting it? Getting the start, and it, and it has implications for the rest of the market. And one last thought on all of this. You know, politically, it's been suggested before that we stop foreign buyers coming in and buying up, you know, half an apartment block in London. It's very tough to do that and be a global trading nation, isn't it? It, it, it is tough. And there, are, there has been talk of trying to stop that. Other countries have started it. But what a lot of people don't appreciate, there needs to be, it's all very well to do that, but you need to somehow substitute that initial investment, because often that initial investment, whether it comes from buy-to-let people or for, for people who are based abroad, they often providing the finance to allow the rest of the development, maybe affordable housing as well, to get built. And if it, if it didn't have that initial kick, it wouldn't happen. So it can be useful. It can be very useful. Interesting. Jeremy Lee, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And this issue is interesting, isn't it? It's rather like the Rwanda issue. You know, if the government is able to do it and does do it, it will be immensely popular. Just think of it, a million people on the social housing waiting list, let alone those who simply cannot get a foot on the rung of the private property market. And, you know, for the, for the under-40s right across this country, it is increasingly becoming a source of great, great anxiety. Now, moving on. This time last week, we were going through one of those quite regular Westminster periods of hysteria. Glenn Owen, the political editor of the Mail on Sunday, had written an article and he'd said that a Tory MP had said to him that Angela Rayner has a tactic that there she is in PMQs or whenever Boris Johnson's at the dispatch box and she crosses and uncrosses her legs as a means of putting him off. Now this was met with howls of indignation. Not only was this Tory MP a dinosaur who, if he was discovered, would be punished with, as the Prime Minister said, the terrors of the earth, but the journalist himself came under question for even writing the article. And I was scratching my head thinking, well, surely the job of journalists is to report what political figures and senior figures say to them. 
the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, intervened and asked for the editor on the Mail on Sunday to go and visit his office. Almost like a sort of headmaster's study invitation. But now it turns out that actually the Conservative Party themselves, who have launched an investigation into this, that four, four Tory MPs bear witness to the fact that this story emanated from Angela Rayner herself. It was a joke that she was telling that had been doing the rounds in Westminster for several months, and that is what was passed on. And I have to say to all of this, I'm not for one moment saying there aren't problems in Westminster. And I'm aware that there are a large number of MPs from both sides of the House who are facing all sorts of allegations. Yes, we've seen Neil Parrish have to resign over the weekend as well. I'm not saying there aren't problems, but what I am saying is to demand, as we had this time last Monday, that procedures, selections to be candidates, that everything should change on the basis of Angela Rainergate, when it turns out to be a complete and utter lie, is ridiculous. There are some that say Angela Rayner now is the real spark, the real fire of the Labour Party. But I would just say this to you. Number one, in the course of one week, we've learned that she was at a party that her office denied she was at. And number two, she allowed Rainergate to go on last week without correcting it and coming forwards and telling the truth. Is it she that started it? And I think to be caught twice in one week not being very truthful is not necessarily the antidote to Boris Johnson. On Russian state TV uh, last night, we were given the most appalling, macabre, terrible spectacle. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in my lifetime. Have a look at what was on Russian state TV last night. It is truly, truly horrifying. Погрузить Британию в морскую пучину российский подводный робот-беспилотник «Посейдон». Он приближается к цели на километровой глубине со скоростью 200 километров в час. Нет никакого способа остановить этот подводный дрон. Боеголовка на нем мощностью до 100 мегатонн. Взрыв and what was left of it. What was left of the country would be a wasteland. I, can't, I mean, it's almost unbelievable that Russian state TV threatens not just the UK, but the British Isles in this way. Uh, and it shows uh, the appalling lengths that Putin, his regime and his state media are prepared to go to. I think it is truly, genuinely shocking. I think it's absolutely awful. The government is being tough, certainly tougher than the Germans are, uh, but this is, a, this, this is a direct threat to the British people. It is vile, it is foul. Some more thoughts from you at home. Is the Rwanda policy working? Is it going to work, perhaps, is the most, is the most important thing. The people who cross the channel by dinghy should be given a choice of being sent to Rwanda or being escorted back to France, says Howard via email. Well, <clears throat> pretty much 
actually what Alexander Downer was saying, give them a choice in France. You can stay there or you can go to Rwanda. It's just that the French, I don't think, will cooperate. And Macron being back in the Elysee isn't going to help us. You have got to stop blaming the people traffickers. People are going to them. They are not being snatched off the streets and shoved on boats, says Tony. The majority are not illegal immigrants. They have tried every illegal route. Sorry, they're not illegal immigrants. They've tried every illegal route to get here. Why can't we send them back to where they came from, says Phil. This issue, and it really was interesting, it wasn't just Gary Neville lashing out at me this morning. There were many well-known names in journalism, politics, current affairs, savaging me for daring to go out in the English Channel to cover what's going on. And I'm very pleased we did, not just to get the rest of the media now back talking about this subject, which they will be in the next couple of days, but to get that footage of a mobile phone being thrown into the English Channel sums up the total racket that is going on. It's Talking Pints. Yes, it's that time of the day, and I'm very pleased to be joined by best-selling author, journalist extraordinaire, man who has very strong opinions. In fact, a man whose opinions on the European Union make me look like a shrinking violet. Yeah, it's Tony Parsons. Tony, welcome to Talking Pints. Good to see very you. Very good to see cheers. you. Cheers, cheers. Cheers. First today. Mm. Ah, it tastes good. And, and you're a watcher of Talking Pints. I'm a watcher of Talking Pints. I'm happy and honoured uh, to be invited. Um, it's uh, my... I can die, die happy now. now I've, uh, <laughs> I was hoping for an Oscar for a Best Adapted Screenplay and to be invited on Talking... and, and to be sharing a pint with you at 7.30 in the evening. So well, I'm very, very uh, pleased you're here. Now, your story is an amazing story. Because <sighs> you kind of go from council house boy in Essex, you're leaving school at 16... What O-levels did you get? Um, I got a handful of O-levels. I went to a grammar school that became a comprehensive and I kind of um, drifted away from it. I mean, I went, when, when it was a grammar school and um, I was under the academic cosh, I kind of responded to that and, uh, and I did very well academically. And then we became a comprehensive and it was, you know, we don't really, you can come if you want or you can, you can bunk off if you want. And, you know, I'm, I was a very ordinary kid. I kind of went with the flow, you know, when there was an expectation. So Parsons needed discipline, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, when, when there was the expectation, you know, we're going to get our French O-level a year early, when there was all that and there was the, the Latin mottos on the blazer and all that, I responded to that. And then when they left, the, 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 when they didn't really care, I, I, I perceived that they didn't really, really, really care about us, um, I, I kind of let it drift. So I, I left at the first po possible opportunity. And I kind of wasn't, you know, I, I was um, not sorry because I knew I wanted to write and I thought... You, well, knew, I, you knew then, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah, very very early on. I thought it was the one thing that I was good at. I thought it was the one the one um, way of um, sticking I'd, sticking close to something that I loved for a lifetime. I felt... Um, I just felt I had a, I was... I knew I was willing to work and... Um, I mean, I came from a background where people didn't have careers, people had jobs. And um, we didn't, I didn't know anybody. I didn't, it's not like my kids have grown up with journalists around and broadcasters around and, and uh, musicians and all that. I, I didn't really know anybody. I wrote to Keith Waterhouse when I was 16. Yeah. He was a bit of a hero of mine. He was a working class boy. 
Um, but he was brilliant at everything. Keith Warhouse was a newspaper columnist. He wrote a, a best-selling book called Billy, Billy Liar. Yeah. He was a playwright. Um, Jeffrey Bernard is on. Well, he did all these things. And I wrote to him and 99 other people saying, what should I do? Where, where, where should I go? What do I do if I'm a working-class kid and I want to write for a, for a living? And he was the only person who wrote back to me. He was the one person nice. who wrote back to me. And he nice said, he yeah. And, 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 and later I realized how generous that was, how easy it is to just ignore that kind of stuff. And he didn't. He responded to me and he said, dear Tony, get an agent. And, um, and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to have to do. So, uh, <laughs> so I, you know, so I was working in a gin distillery and I wrote a novel and it got published incredibly. It wasn't a very good novel, but it got published. You see, if I'd left school. Yeah and gone to work in a gin distillery. Yeah. I'll probably still be there. Drinking gin, yeah, yeah. I I my, I'm a bit, me and gin, it's a bit like Keith Richards and heroin. You know, I kind of had my fill, you know, I had my fill. We had our time and then it was over, yeah. But all of this was a, was a these were all stepping stones to being a writer. Yeah. What, what did your parents think about? I mean, you, 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 your father was a war veteran. Yeah, De yeah, my decorated. Dad, yeah, my dad was a, a Royal Naval Commando um, in World War Two. He was in Italy. He was at Monte Cassino, invasion wow. of Sicily. Um, he um, he was very badly wounded on Operation Brassard, which uh, the history books called Bloody Little Sideshow, which was the invasion there of Elba. Picture of him oh, there. Oh, that's my old man. Yeah, yeah. after after the war. And he, he got the Distinguished Service Medal, and he was always a little bit, um, and that, that's an incredible honor. That's the second highest uh, award for valor. And, um, but when they thought he was gonna die, they told him he was gonna get the VC. And so he was always felt a little bit robbed. He got a DSM, <laughs> you know, which is an incredible, unbelievable honor. Well, but they I'm told sure him, you'd yeah. rather have your dad than a posthumous VC. Yeah, so, well, yeah, and, and, get, and get born, get yeah, born. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but he was... Um, so did he encourage you? Did, mom, did mom and dad encourage yeah, you? My mum was very creative. My mum had six brothers and um, she was self-taught piano player. She wrote poetry, she was very creative. Um, so she kind of understood, I think, more than my dad did when, I think, my mum understood the creative impulse and you know the the the, the wish and, and the aspiration to tell stories to to kind of break out of of the world that, that we lived in and um and i think my dad didn't get it as much and he, he said the one thing he said to me was the, i don't know anything about this writing game i don't understand what you're going to do i don't know if you're going to get your your heart broken uh, he said the one thing i'd say to you is keep earning Whatever you do, keep earning. Dream big, but keep earning. And it was great advice because it was it made me, you know, because it's um, it it made it more like a job. It made it made writing, more, you know, that I was aware that I had responsibility to my loved ones, to my family, people that I support. Um, you know, that I just had to keep that money coming in. So that's why I've always kind of, you know. Written, written for newspapers and magazines yeah. as well as the, yeah. the books. Yeah, actively, and, and, and you still, I mean, you work for everybody yeah. over the years. Yeah. You work yeah. for the Mirror and... Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much everybody, You've yeah. been at The Sun for 10 years yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. And you do your Sun on Sunday. I do, yeah, and you know, and print journalism is changing. So many of my, so many of my old colleagues have, um, you know, have left the industry, and I'm, you know, I feel like I'm a milkman. You know, I'm happy to still, you know, be giving the housewives, you know, a bottle of my gold top every Sunday morning, you know. <laughs> Well, how much of your work's online now? Uh, yeah, 
I mean, the newspaper the itself, the yeah. newspaper itself, obviously I can read yeah. what you've put in your Sunday column, which I yeah. always do. I can read that online if I want yeah. to. But do you yourself as a writer, are you are you using all sorts of blogs and different platforms? No, and... I don't really. I'm kind of, I'm old school. You know, I'm old school. I, I you know, I like, I like print. I like newspapers. And with the books, you know, I prefer a, a solid book. I prefer a real book rather than the Kindles and, and the other stuff, which is, which is very important these days. And in books, you know, the sales are like 50-50 now. Yeah. So it's very, very important. Um, but I I just like the feel of, you know, I like those inky fingers. <laughs> but Fleet Street, you know, yep. you, w when you joined what was actually Fleet Street, yep. you know, and the newspaper industry was buzzing and it set the agenda and it, it you know, it did turn elections. It, it must have then been a very exciting place to be. It was. And, um, you know, whenever there was a, a new editor at the newspapers that I worked for, the first call that they got was from 10 Downing Street. You know, because they were important, yeah. and they could, and it yeah. could, they could, they could turn history. They could, they, and they, they were influential on history. And I, I think that that's been inevitably that's been lost. But you know, it's, um, it. I still believe in newspapers. I still think that when there are great events, great historical events, you know, like 9/11, mm -hmm. like what we're going through now with Ukraine, I still think newspapers are important. I still believe in newspapers. They are important, but you're, um, you're not exactly backwards and coming forwards, are you, in terms of what I mentioned earlier? I mean, you're, you are... When did you first become a Eurosceptic? Um, I think, well, I voted... The first, very first time I voted was, was in the 70s referendum. Yeah. And I voted, as, as the country did, I voted to be a part of this common market. Yeah. And uh, because I thought it was, you know, I bought the, the line that it was the future, that it was just a, you know, and all the stuff about the loss of sovereignty and uh, your, your, your country's identity disappearing. That was, you know, the small print that we didn't read. We didn't read it as a country. I didn't read it as, as a young man. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, by the time we were campaigning to save the pound, it just seemed to me that it was no longer an economic project, but it a political changed. project. You know? and, if it, and if it had been an economic project, if it had just been that common market, I think the British people, it would have been so easy to keep the British people within the European Union if they said, look, you know, we understand that a country that hasn't been invaded for a thousand years sees no reason to give up its national identity. You know, we haven't been conquered. We haven't, we have, we haven't been, we haven't felt that Russian or German jackboot on our necks. So we've got, there's no reason why we should give up who we are. There's no reason why we shouldn't be, shouldn't continue to be who we are. Um, so I think by the time we were fighting for the power, I was like looking at the number of times that the Germans had changed their currency in the 20th century <laughs> and thinking, well, yeah, they had to change their currency, but we didn't. So why? And what was interesting about that time is that the, there wasn't, it was still, you could still have an opinion. You know, you could still be, you know, I believe that we should keep the pound because I think it's best for my country. It's a big moment, wasn't it? It was a big moment. And, yeah. But one of the people that I was campaigning with was Bob Geldof. And Bob Geldof was very, I you know, know everyone's and, forgotten that. And, and yeah. everybody's forgotten that. And that was that shows how we've become polarised. And now there's this, you know, if you're on one side, then we won it, Tony. But I mean, you're very disappointed with the results. I am disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I am disappointed. I can't. I, I, and I, I kind of almost feel bad about saying that I'm disappointed. But I feel I that know, pretty much every every promise has been broken. And and. Some of those promises, I think, would have been easy to keep. You know, the, the promise of um, once we're outside of the, the EU, kind of the, the VAT. How about that, that? That's, that's that was within, an easy one, wasn't it? That, that's, not, that's not an intractable problem. That's within the government's yeah. gift. And controlling borders. Yeah. Well, controlling, bo controlling borders, you know, it, it, should, it should be a 
controlling borders should be keeping out who we want to keep out, but letting in who we want to keep in. And that that's, you know, the people, I think the British people, I mean, I've been married to foreigner for 30 years and I think that this is a generous, big-hearted, tolerant, inclusive country. Uh, I think we've got nothing to apologise about for our the way we treat the rest of the world, the way we treat people that come here. But, you know, there are people here that are crying out to give a home to Ukrainians. You know, the people really yeah. respond yeah, yeah, yeah. to the story. Uh, and they, and they can't do that, and they can't do that yeah. because there's the paperwork. You know, and should we be ashamed of slavery and is Winston Churchill about I mean, How do you see it? I mean, the campaign against Churchill, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I, I think that's madness. I mean, I, I was brought up to believe that he was a great national hero and I still believe it and I'll go to my grave believing it. I, I think, you know, by all means learn about slavery, learn about um, this country's role in slavery, but that includes... And how we did we, our have, bit we of abolished liberation. it yeah. in 1807. Uh, 25,000 Navy, British Navy men died uh, in force. Yeah, learn about that too. So yeah. I'm all in favour of education. I'm all in favour of that. But then, but don't just learn one side of it, you no. know. Now the books... You've written book after yep. book after book, and oh, this a new one. is the latest one, The People Next Door. Uh, and you've written books, and how many books have you sold? A few million. A few million, somewhere in the million. Somewhere in the, somewhere in the low million. Oh, it's pretty good, Somewhere, somewhere it? in the low million, yeah. It's not, it's not J.K. Rowling, but it's kind of, you know... Well, it's still pretty yeah. good. And you, you've, yeah. made, you've made a few quid out of it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what works? Is it, your, is it your observations on... Life on. Yeah, I think. It's, do people read your books and think, "Yeah, I've been through that," or "I'm feeling that way"? I or... think. I think. I think there is that. I think there's. Um, there's a universal quality to the to the books, and Man and Boy was was my greatest hit, and it's a really simple story, um, and it's about. Um, a father and a son, and it's a, and it's about your parents getting older and saying goodbye to your parents, um, and the things that we all go through, and um, and I think it, you know, it's like a great song that just strikes a chord in your heart, and you feel that it's been written about years. So um, yeah, I think that I think there's a lot of that. They're they're you know they're quite. You obviously uh, felt you had it in you from an early age. I really did. You know, my parents um, got married when well after my dad. My dad was really 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 badly injured. He's yeah he's torso was uh, a massive scar tissue and he came very close to dying and they kind of seized the moment and got married very young they were teenagers and then they couldn't have a baby and um i think this was devastating to both of them my mum had six brothers my dad had eight sisters and two brothers and i think that they thought and of course there wasn't um so they were you know they were kind of banging away for 10 years and then kind of <laughs> gave up and they were going to drive through italy on on their motorbike um my dad loved italy spoke fluent italian was in love with the italian people and then i came along and because they'd waited for so long they both had very very clear ideas about what i was going to be like and my dad wanted me to be a tough guy my dad wanted me to be he didn't think i could ever be as tough as him but he wanted me to be tough enough and so he wanted me to box and he wanted me to to be a, a scrapper and my mum wanted to sit me on her lap and read me Rupert the Bear stories you know and um so my dad bought me this this boxing thing where you stood on this plank and you punched <laughs> it and it came back and hit you in the face I thought oh, I think I fancy Rupert the Bear yeah and so uh and so it was Rupert the Bear and my mum that made me a, a writer and a storyteller well, yeah. huge success yeah. and just a final thought yeah what would you say to young people who are setting out, embarking on a career, 
in writing, have got I'd that say, burning passion that you had? Yeah, I'd, just, I'd say to anyone, whether they're going to be a writer or anything else, just stay close to the things you love. You know, just identify the things you love. You know, be prepared to sacrifice things for the things you love. Be prepared to, to work when other people are knocking off. Be, be prepared to put the hours in. Um, and uh, you, you'll have a reward in life. That's what I'd say. Tony. Cheers. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Now, Gary Neville has provoked quite a reaction, and I've got one or two of them here. Can't believe a multi-millionaire ex-footballer dabbling in politics recently thinks he knows better than someone who's been in politics for donkey's years. It's a bit like a 16-year-old kid in a Man United youth kit lecturing Ronaldo about football. Well, you know, the fact that I've done politics for a long time doesn't mean I'm always right, believe you me. However, what is right is to make sure that people actually get the truth about what's going on. Because what's happening in my channel, they two years ago, mainstream media were willfully ignoring it. More on Gary Neville. Once again, moralising when you don't actually know what you're on about. The majority of Brits want illegal immigration to be stopped and more support. Uh, that oppose the Rwanda policy, both Conservative and Labour. Thoughts on Rwanda, Tony? Um, I don't think it's going to work. I think that even with um, Macron in the Elysee Palace, I yeah. think two great nations like the UK and uh, France should be able to smash what is essentially a bunch of gangsters. I think it shouldn't be beyond their capabilities. Even if there's someone who smeared the Oxford AstraZeneca, even if there's someone <laughs> who will always resent us for He, he does behave terribly. He does. He, be, he behaves abominably and he, and he actually costs lives. So I think I really think yeah. that Macron costs... But I still think that the UK and France should be able to smash what is essentially a bunch of gangsters. You know, we stand well, up to Russia. Yeah. You know, we stand up to uh, terrorists. We should be able to deal with some gangsters on, in the north of France. You know, we, yeah. should, and uh, we, and we, should, we should be and able to do it. that's what they are, gangsters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And one last thought on the Gary Neville saga. I get one here. He's just got a different point of view to you. I have a different point of view to you too. You need more tolerance. No, no, I think you're missing this. I'm the tolerant one. He's the intolerant one. I'm happy that I've got a different point of view to Gary Neville. The fact that, the fact that I go out into the channel, cover this story, show what's going on, uh, get a lot of other, get a lot of other media and broadcasters covering this, which they wouldn't have done, that is about open, free debate. And Gary is welcome to come on this programme anytime he likes and we'll have a very, very civilised point of view. Um, good. Barrage the Farage. Would you buy a pub, says Ryan? You must be joking. Anyone that likes a pint as much as I do, the biggest disaster in their lives could be to buy a pub. It makes no sense at all. Right, we're done for the evening. Tony, all my guests, thank you. Mark Stein up next. Have a look at the weather in a moment. The channel's going to be flat calm. They'll come again, I promise you. <laughs>